Let me begin our time together this morning by updating you on where we are in our capital campaign. We call it Journey of Faith, and it's the means by which we are paying off the last bit of remaining debt on our facilities, including the room that you're sitting in. And this is where we are uh, this year. Um, Last year, we we raised $201,000 in pledges. This year, we're sitting at about $174,000 at this point in time. Um, so we're a little below really where we need to be, which is about that $200,000 mark. And more critically is this next slide that shows that last year we had 273 families and individuals helping us. We have 209 this year. And we have 117 uh, people who are part of North Wake who have not been willing to give or to commit to pray towards this need of the church. And Let me just tell you, that that is troubling to me as your pastor. It is not good for your soul, and it hamstrings the church. It really does. And I know some of you are thinking, "I, I can't do much. You can pray, and many of you, if not all of you, can give a little, and that little matters. Let me show you what I mean. If you were to be willing once a week to give up this, it is a venti hazelnut latte from Starbucks, you pay a little tax, maybe you leave a little tip, you're at least five bucks. Okay? If you were to do that once a week this next year, and if all 117 people were to join you, we'd raise another $30,000 and we'd end up here. We'd be slightly above where we were last year. Okay? All for a venti hazelnut latte, that, that level of sacrifice. Um, your, your little bit matters. Now, some of you can, can do a great bit, and I don't want to discourage you. That matters too. Um, but your little bit, linked with everybody's little bit, is the way our church, um, it's the way our church works. Um, we cannot afford 100-plus people sitting on the sidelines in our time of need. So let me encourage you, pray about how God would have you get on board in this matter of blessing the church that you love. Um, and uh, there should be some cards in the lobby. If not, you can write it on the back of your bulletin, on a napkin. You can put it on a sock. We don't care. Just let us know that you're on board and how you can contribute to this. So if you'll turn that in in the weeks that are ahead before year's end, um, that would be tremendously helpful. And let's make that a matter of prayer now together and ready our hearts for the word, which will come now. Lord, it's hard for us to be generous um, when every day this season we're told about better deals, uh, this Friday deal, that Monday deal, this deal that we must do, we must get. And so the church we love suffers uh, when we yield to those temptations inordinately, and I pray, God, that... um, You might give us gladly, generously, sacrificial hearts towards your people here in this room, towards all that this church embodies and does. And we need you to help us with that. So, Lord, meet our needs. Meet them through us with joy. Now bring the word in a way that encourages us and gives us hope, I pray, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the the season of Advent is upon us, and um, 
It is a season of preparation and of readiness. So what we're going to do this week and next is look at the preparatory events, a couple of them that lead up most closely to the birth of Christ. They're found in Luke chapter 1. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to Luke's gospel, the first chapter, today we're going to focus on the story of Zechariah, but it's really not all about him, okay? It starts, we're going to pick it up in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1, where it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." Right away, there's a really stark contrast to this very first verse. You've got Herod, who, as uh, our worship team sang just a few minutes ago, was renowned for his cruelty and jealousy of any threats to his rule. Put him up against Zechariah, who is obedient to all the commands of God in humble submission to his rule. And these are the two characters that were introduced right out of the box. Um, this, this aged, righteous priest named Zechariah, um, he and his wife, they're old. Okay? When you think of Zechariah and Elizabeth, think of your grandparents. Okay? That's, that's the generation of folk that, that we're talking about. Um, they were godly folk, but Luke tells us they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. The days of hoping for a child for them were over, okay? And, and in those days, in their culture, to be barren was perhaps the worst thing that could happen to a wife. Um, it was, in their minds, a clear sign of God's disfavor upon your life. After all, wasn't fertility in the Old Testament one of the signs of the blessing of God upon his people? So... If you were barren, if you could not bear children, then there must be sin. There must be something God is holding against you. So a barren woman was a disgraced woman. That's Elizabeth's own word that she uses. She calls it a disgrace or a reproach. Um, and it wasn't uncommon for a husband to divorce his wife because of this supposed flaw. As Mark Mitchell puts it, he says, in essence, Elizabeth was forced to walk through life with a sign hung around her neck that read, Sinner. And I, and I know that for those of you who want to start a family, who want to have children, and have not been able to yet, to come to North Wake, a.k.a. the Church of the Exploding Nursery, uh, that can be hard. I mean, it really can be hard. Um, and, and I want you to know that the cultural um, thinking that was going on in this time is, is not right thinking, okay? Your, your suffering, this hardship, is much more likely because of God's kindness to you in terms of a mysterious timing than it, has, than it is likely having anything to do with any consequence of your sin. But those of you who do suffer that hardship, you probably in a special way understand what Elizabeth and Zechariah are going through. Um, it was too late for them. They were too old. 
That's the point. It was no longer physically possible for them to have children. Suggestions I read suggest they were at least 60, possibly as old as 80. Um, grandma and Grandpa, that's who we're talking about here. Well, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So there were 24 divisions of priests in this day, and each division, um, many of them were throughout the countryside in rural areas. They would come two different times during the year for one week. So for two weeks out of the year, they would come to Jerusalem, and, and that division would serve in the temple. And out of that group of people, they would draw lots to see who it was who would enter the holy place of the temple and burn incense there as an offering before the Lord. Um, and they would do that by lot, and it could only happen, literally, it was a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. So one out of 18,000 names would be pulled in that instance and selected to go in, and the lot this time fell on godly old Zechariah. This would be the high point of his life as a priest. The whole multitude of the people were praying outside in the outer courts of the temple at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Here's a description uh, from Hendrickson's commentary about what was going on here. He says, Zechariah proceeds towards a golden altar. He's accompanied by two assistants. One of these men is carrying a golden bowl of burning coals from the altar of burnt offering, and he's spreading them out on the altar of incense. He then withdraws. The other assistant is carrying a golden censer filled with incense, and he arranges the incense upon the altar, and now profound silence ensues, for the most solemn action of the ritual is about to occur. A signal is given, and the sacred moment has now arrived for Zechariah to place the incense upon the coals, causing a cloud, cloud to arise, its fragrance rising and spreading. Together with the ascending aroma, a fervent prayer consisting of thanksgiving for blessings received and of prayers for peace upon Israel, God's peace, now issues from the heart and lips of Zechariah. The people gathered outside the sanctuary, but inside its courts are also praying, bowed low with outstretched hands. And they wait for Zechariah to return and pronounce a blessing over them. But what they don't know is that an angel has showed up and interrupted this sacred, solemn process that's going on in there. This appearance of an angel is extremely troubling to Zechariah, as it should be, for, for a number of reasons. First of all, This is an angel, not a cherub, okay? Not, this is not what we're talking about when we talk about angel. When we talk about an angel, we're talking about a warrior angel. Uh, Something like this, maybe. That's what we're talking about. (laughs) Talking about big, scary, powerful, bad Photoshop angel, okay, Is, is really what we're talking about. Um, see, in the Bible, when people encountered angels, they did usually one of two things or maybe both. They would be terrified for their lives and they would fall down on their faces or they would be confused and think that that being was deity, was God itself, himself, and they would bow down to worship. And often they do both. Um, 
So that's one of the reasons that he's terrified what's going on. Uh, this is no cherub that shows up. This is an angel. Secondly, back in the book of Leviticus, there was a well-known encounter. A couple of priests went in to do this very action of offering incense um, as, as an act of worship, fire as an act of worship. They authored what Leviticus says was unauthorized or strange fire, and they died on the spot because of it. So for all Zechariah knows, he's messed up. And this angel has shown up to do him in. He's terrified. And then lastly, there's been no messenger from God recorded for us at this point in history for over 400 years. So the last thing that he's expecting is an angelic messenger to show up in this scenario. He is justifiably fearful at this point. But the angel calms his fears and explains his mission. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So what is unfolding here? I don't want you to miss this. What is unfolding here is an answer to Zechariah's prayer. Most, most clearly, that, that could be he and Elizabeth's prayer for a son. Don't you know that they had prayed and prayed and prayed? Likely long ago, this was a prayer likely from long ago because he is shocked by the news that they're going to have a son. But they had prayed. And, and the stun factor of this announcement is, a, is heightened because the angel is clear that the son is going to come through Grandma Elizabeth, not some younger bride that he might pick up somewhere. Um, it says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. The gender, the angel makes the gender clear. It's going to be a boy. Now, this happens before conception. We've got really amazing sonograms these days. About 12 weeks, they can pick up the gender, I guess. But they're not this good. This is before conception, they know the gender. And this is not detection of gender. This is prediction. This is prophecy of what God is about to do. Don't miss, this is an answer to Zechariah's prayer. Everything that's about to unfold that the angel is speaking of, the trigger is Zechariah's prayer. I wonder how long they'd prayed for a son. For years? For decades? I wonder how long priests had been going into this holy place and praying for a deliverer to come from God and bring peace to God's people. For decades? For centuries? Um, when, when we pray persevering prayers, spiritual stuff happens. It does. When we pray faithfully for years, maybe even for decades, spiritual stuff happens beyond, beyond our request. That's what happens here. Zechariah's been praying this prayer, likely had given up on this prayer, and now um, the sun is to come. 
And that son is to give way to even a greater answer to the prayers he was praying as a priest. This set of seeming grandparents now is going to be parents. She would bear a son, and not just any son. He's going to bring them great joy, not just them. It's going to bring many joy. It says, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn away, uh, or he will turn many, excuse me, of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So they're not just going to have any old son in their old age that's going to remove their disgrace and shame. They're going to have a son who will be great before the Lord. Um, He will abstain from alcohol. That does not mean he will be a seminary student. It means he will be greatly and wholly devoted to the Lord. Um, He will bring restoration to God's people. He's going to restore families, but most significantly, there's going to be a turning of wayward people back to the Lord because of this son's ministry. He will be the one who will precede the coming of the Lord. He's going to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. Now, we know that this, this baby named John is going to grow up to become what we know, we know to be John the Baptist. Okay. The one whom Jesus said is the greatest man born to a woman. And he would one day take his disciples and point to Jesus and say, Behold, uh, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And this, this, perhaps, is the fuller answer to prayer that the angel was referring to. Not just that they would have a son, but they would have a son who would be the pointer to the Messiah who would come and deliver them and free his people from their sin. So Zechariah and Elizabeth have gone from being barren to bearing the greatest man ever born, according to Jesus. Now, Unfortunately, but literally, this is unbelievable to Zechariah. It's too good to be true. This is how Zechariah responds. He says to the angel, how shall I know this? I'm an old man, and he's choosing his words very carefully here, and he says, my wife is advanced in years. He does not say anything about my old lady. Guys, never refer to your wife as your old lady. Just take a a clue here from Zechariah. Um, But he's asking for a sign. He just can't believe it's true for good reason. It's physically and medically impossible. This is godly Zechariah, and he doubts. Godly people doubt. It happens to us. It's not good when it happens, but it happens. And God has a purpose for us even when we doubt. As a result of our doubting, God does for us what he's going to do for Zechariah. He's going to lovingly purify his unbelieving heart, which typically involves suffering over time. And in Zechariah's case, that'll be nine months. Here's how the angel responds. The angel responds saying, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So essentially he's saying, so you want a sign? How about an angel sent from the presence of God to you? The same angel, by the way, that showed up in the Old Testament to Daniel. And when Daniel saw that angel, he fell on the ground in fear. Would that work? Is that a good sign for you? You want a sign? How about that? How about me? The angel grants him, Zechariah, a request for a sign. It's just not the sign that he wanted. This is what he says. Behold, Zechariah, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, till the baby's born. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Because Zechariah would not believe that God could do this through him or that he would be so kind as to do this through him, he gets a sign that borders on a spanking. Okay? He would not be able to speak for nine months until the prophesied child is born. So God, it's interesting, God makes him silent to strengthen his faith and chase out unbelief. The tool that God wields to strengthen his faith and chase out his unbelief is silence. There's a, there's a reference to this in Lamentations in the Old Testament where the prophet Jeremiah says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation, the deliverance of the Lord. This is exactly what God has put upon Je on Zechariah that he should wait quietly for the deliverance of the Lord. Silence seems to be a posture where God has access to us and changes us. The season of Advent is often marked by times of silence, seeking the Lord, perhaps coming out of this very experience that Zechariah is having. It's much better to seek God in silence voluntarily than to have it inflicted upon you by God. Okay. Uh, how about that? Do you do that? Do you ever? No TV, no iPod, just you and God and his word, listening to what he might say by the spirit through the scriptures. Could, could you work that into part of your Advent readiness for the celebration of Christ? Do you believe that the promises of God could come true for you and even through you? Could God use you? Regardless of your past, whatever seeming impossibilities lie before you, could God bring about his promises through you, for you? 2 Corinthians 9 is an encouragement to us. Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, all you need, in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's writing to them about their ability to be generous, that God's going to give them what they need to be generous. See, this is, this is why that 
count me in, I'm on board category in our capital campaign is so important. It's a way of saying, I am trusting God to work through me even though I cannot see a way. I will pray and ask him to enable me to do that which I cannot see that seems impossible to me. It's a way of believing God can work even through me when it seems impossible. Well, the people are waiting outside of the holy place in the courtyard of the temple for Zechariah, and they're wondering at his delay in there. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So the people, as they wait outside, they're getting worried because they know the story from Leviticus of the guys who got killed in there, and they're wondering what happened to Zechariah. He comes out, and he can't talk, so he explains to them by charades. Two syllables. Angel, you know, whatever, angel, you do angel, I don't know. He gets his point across, saw a vision. Um, and so the first of the angel's predictions comes true. Zechariah cannot speak. And the second prediction is about to. In verse 23, when his time of service, that week-long time of service, was ended, he went to his home, and after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in, in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah finishes out his service. He goes home to Elizabeth, who does not know what's going on, and he can't tell her. So you've got to have more charades going on at this point in time. And I like the way Mark Mitchell describes it. He says, I find these verses very humorous. I mean, think about it. Zechariah can't speak. He returns to his home in the hill country of Judea where Elizabeth is. The first night as they're getting ready for bed, Zechariah has that look in his eye. She hasn't seen that look for a long time. She's thinking, you've got to be kidding then he starts with the sign language again. Imagine him trying to communicate his intentions. Scripture spares us the details. It just says, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And God keeps his word. He does what's impossible. Even when it seemed unbelievable to such a devout man as Zechariah, God made the impossible possible. He made them actual. The grandparents shall be with child. God has kept his word by his sovereign power. As Elizabeth says, the Lord has done this for me. Now skip down to verse 57 with me. We'll cover the middle section next week. Uh, but Luke picks up Zechariah's story again in verse 57. And, and again, it's not really about Zechariah. So now the time came, verse 57, for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And so it happened, just like the angel Gabriel said it would. A son was born, and many rejoiced. A down payment of the many who would rejoice over the ministry of this baby who we know to be John the Baptist. And on the eighth day... 
they came to circumcise the child. Again, this is in obedience to the law on the eighth day. They go to circumcise this. And evidently, it's a group activity back in the day because there's a bunch of people there. And uh, they, the people, not Zechariah and Elizabeth, but they, this crowd of people who turned out for the circumcision, called, would have him called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. Um, See, God, God has fulfilled his word. And Zechariah and Elizabeth have determined to obey God's instructions concerning their son's name. His name will be John. Even in the face of what for them must have been really big-time peer pressure. But think about this. You thought your in-laws were medicine, right? These people uh, have decided what the name of the baby is and haven't even talked to Elizabeth about it. Without even consulting the mom, they've decided that the baby should be named Zechariah. But Zechariah and Elizabeth are determined to do what God has asked. And so over these silent months, these listening months, Zechariah's unbelief has been banished and his faith in God's promises has been made strong. Stronger than his doubts. Stronger than the pressure of family and friends. Zechariah has been given the gift of time to be still and to think and to listen to God, perhaps to God alone. Some think he may have been deaf as well as mute, and that's why they had to sign to him, to talk to him. How did Elizabeth know to name John, John? She wasn't there. She didn't hear the angel. Zechariah couldn't tell her. Had to be more charades and a writing tablet. In faith, doubting Zechariah now believed. Because of his suffering, that God was going to keep his promises. See, in spite of that one wobble of unbelief, Zechariah remains a man who was righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. His discipline served its purpose. His hardship increased his faith. If you are suffering, if you're in a hard place, financially, physically, relationally, um, draw near to God. That's his purpose in your suffering, that your faith might be increased and your trust in him might be purer than it was before. Let it be a time to seek God in quietness and trust. Verse 64, having written out his name is John on the tablet, immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. If you'd been trying to name him a name contrary to the will of God, you might be afraid to. But fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be for the hand of the Lord? was with him. And you have to love that Zechariah, after nine months of hardship and suffering, his first words when given back to him are, bless the Lord. 
Bless the Lord my God. And God honors his faith as he wrote those words and his voice is restored. And God uses his faith. His neighbors are impacted by it. And Luke now records words of Zechariah's newfound voice and faith for us to listen in on. Let me just read them to you. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the land of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And now, for the first time, he turns to his own son. He's been focused on another. Now he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to give our feet to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's interesting that his song is primarily, his prayer, his prophecy is primarily not about his own son. This miracle son that he holds in his arms after all these decades of barrenness. Only the last two verses are about his son. This devout man is captivated by one even greater than his miracle son. Zechariah now sees and now believes, likely because of a conversation we'll look at next week that Mary had with Elizabeth and vice versa. He believes that Mary is bearing the Messiah, that the Messiah, the horn of salvation, has come. Zechariah says God has come, the horn of salvation, the Lord, the rising sun. God is bringing to pass what is promised to Abraham, what the prophet said would come from the house of David. There is one who is coming, who has come, bringing redemption and salvation from those who hate us, rescue from enemies, forgiveness of sins, the very great mercy of God. And so after nine months, Zechariah believes in something much greater than that his aging wife could bear a son. He believes that the Christ has come. He believes the promises that God made to Abraham and David are being fulfilled in Mary's son, that there is available now forgiveness through this one who is coming. That's what Zechariah believes. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the one who is coming, the one who was born at Christmas, came to rescue you from your sins? That's why he lived his life, died on the cross, rose from the dead to be our sin-bearer so that we would not have to bear them ourselves. When John would grow up, as we said, he would be John the Baptist, and he would point to his disciples, and when he saw Jesus coming toward him, he would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you believe that's true for you? If you do, then this is your day to be rescued from your sins.
the day when all the suffering that you've had makes sense as you are restored, turned to a right relationship with your God through faith in Jesus, trusting him to be your sin bearer and your king, the king that you live to serve and worship all your days. If that's the case, when I pray in just a minute, I'll pray words that you can pray to demonstrate your faith to God in the work that Jesus has done for you. Zechariah's story is also an invitation to seek God in persevering prayer, in silent meditation upon his word, even maybe especially when times are hard, when we are suffering. I hope you'll seize that invitation this Advent season. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we come to you, not a one of us with a clean slate, black marks up and down. Sins, they're called. They are wrongs ultimately against you. And you are right to remember them and hold them against us. But in love, you have made a better way. The only way. Mary's son, Jesus, our only hope for mercy enough to forgive us from our sins. So Lord, hear now as we cast our hope, not from our own good works, but the good work of Jesus on the cross for us. Hear our prayers as we do that. Welcome us into your family. And Lord, for those of us who believe, give us grace and mercy this season to seek you that our unbelief might be purged and our faith might be strengthened. Help us not to be too busy to carve out time to sit with you and let your spirit and your word work faith in us. And this we ask for the sake of the one who was born on Christmas Day, Jesus the Christ. Amen.